0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures, as always. We are in the book of Jeremiah this morning, and uh, we 've covered fifteen chapters, and we 're ready this morning for chapter sixteen. We were off last week with a missionary report appreciate having Moses in town and the blessings uh, there that it was for Moses to bring the Word of God to us. Uh, But this morning we're back to uh, Jeremiah and we're ready now for chapter 16. The Word of the Lord also came to me saying, You shall not take a wife for yourself, nor have sons or daughters in this place. All right. Wow, that gets your attention, doesn't it? It's like uh, one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not. Think about all the thou shalt nots everywhere in the Bible. And here's a thou shalt not that gets your attention, doesn't it? Thou shalt not take a wife for yourself, nor have sons or daughters in this place. And so it's a sad message. And uh, we're, we're covered here. 21 verses worth between now and the end of the hour. It is communion Sunday, though, so that's always our short, short session. Let's uh, open up with a word of prayer and get right to it. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to study, to show ourselves approved, to receive instruction, Father, I pray that we would, with humility, receive the word implanted. Father, we want the living and abiding word of God to dwell richly within each one of us. This is more than simply intellectual uh, information. Father, this is the living and abiding word of God. and Father, we want it to dwell richly. We want it to live. We want it to spring forth and bear fruit 30, 60, 100-fold, Father, according to your will, according to your grace. So bless your word today. Open the eyes of our understanding. Bless us as we assemble together. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Jeremiah is going to be placed under severe personal life restrictions in order to communicate Judah's pending judgment. This is not normal. Celibacy is not normal. Marriage is the normal plan. It is not good for the man to be alone. And in the normal design of things from Adam and Eve throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, with few exceptions, marriage and family life is considered normal. The uh, requirement that the uh, Roman Catholic Church, for example, placed upon their priesthood is abnormal and not biblical in terms of what the scripture reveals, Old Testament, New Testament alike. This passage, by the way, far from proving the uh, celibacy of the Roman priesthood, actually disproves the celibacy of the Roman priesthood by showing how unusual that it is and why specifically the, the purpose for Jeremiah himself illustrating this is to communicate the message of the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. It has no use in the church age. It has no use in uh, anything related to the body of Christ because we have a different story to tell as uh, those that serve the risen Savior in the portrayal that we have of Christ in the church. And so let's take a look at it. Verses 1 through 9, the severe personal life restrictions. You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters. Notice the order. All right? Shouldn't have to say it, but in this culture, uh, marriage comes and then children. Okay? That's the biblical pattern. Marriage was designed and then family was designed. Those are the divine establishment, uh, the precedents there. Um, and Jeremiah is being denied both. He's being denied normal family life of marriage and normal family life of children. For thus says, And there's a reason for that. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters born in this place and concerning their mothers who bear them and their fathers who beget them in this land. They will die of deadly diseases. They will not be lamented or buried. They will be as dung on the surface of the ground and come to an end by sword and famine. And their carcasses will become food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. This is pretty gruesome, but this is the reality that Jeremiah had to preach. And the reason why he was to not get married and the reason why he was not to have children and the reason why he's going to be prohibited from attending any wedding service and, 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 and any funeral service. He is not to take part in any of these things. And this is the reason why, is so that he can communicate through his life, the message that he's communicating here is, that, is the, the judgment that's coming upon Israel and their national destruction. And there is coming a time when there will be no more funerals. There will be no more weddings to attend anyway that they're going to be starving under the siege conditions as Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are, are bringing them under the siege conditions. And so there aren't going to be any more weddings to attend. There aren't going to be any more funerals to attend because as they die, they're going to be laying in the open street. They're going to be consumed by the dogs and the animals and the people that uh, will resort to the cannibalism to try to survive the, the siege. All right. And uh, this is what we're dealing with. Verse 5, for thus says the Lord, do not enter a house of mourning or go to lament or console them. So funerals are off limits. Uh, You know, funeral last week, there's a funeral coming up this week, there's another funeral. Uh, Seems like we're in a season of funerals in the last couple of weeks. Um, Jeremiah was banned from attending or preaching or taking part in any way. Any mourning uh, service or activity to lament or to console them. Can't even show up to encourage anybody. See. For I have withdrawn my peace from this people, declares the Lord, my loving kindness and my compassion. A world without chesed is, a, is not a good place to be. And this is the hand of God's judgment upon Jerusalem. Both great men and small, verse 6, will die in this land. They will not be buried. They will not be lamented, nor will anyone gnash himself or shave his head for them. Uh, not, there won't be any biblical burial practices. There won't even be any pagan burial practices such as is described here. That's what the, the gashes and the shaving is about. Men will not break bread in mourning for them to comfort anyone for the dead, nor give them a cup of consolation to drink for anyone's father or mother. Moreover, so that's the on the negative side of things. No funerals, no sadness. Neither on the positive side of things, on the rejoicing side of things. You know, the Bible tells us to re- weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, except for you, Jeremiah, Alright? You're doing neither. You're doing neither to teach this doctrine. So you shall not go to a house of feasting to sit with them, to eat and drink. You get a wedding invitation. You'll have to decline. You will not participate in the feasting. And it and, and won't be too long anyway, and there won't be any feasting because there won't be food in order to feast. Uh, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm going to eliminate from this place, before your eyes and in your time, the voice of rejoicing and the voice of gladness, the voice of the groom and the voice of the bride. See, Isaiah, in his ministry, 150 years before Jeremiah, Isaiah got to preach some pretty harsh messages, but his messages all contained a, uh, a repent. Uh, an or else message, a, a hope that if they did repent, such as King Hezekiah and other good kings, that there could be grace, that, that hesed can come back, and that there might be a, a relenting of God's judgment and a delay. And as a matter of fact, that was true, at least up through Hezekiah's reign. It was not until Manasseh, the wicked King Manasseh, then uh, Judah crossed the point of no return. And in Jeremiah's ministry, there's no repent or else concept because the judgment is coming. There's nothing that's going to stop it. Even if Moses and Samuel showed up to join with Jeremiah in his prayers, there is nothing that's going to hinder the judgment of Jerusalem. God has already swept away the remnant that he's preserving. And by the way, uh, and we'll see this coming up in a passage, uh, family life was to continue on a normal basis, as normal as it can be in captivity. They were supposed to take wives, they were supposed to have children, they were supposed to run businesses, they were supposed to live in their exile, in their captivity, to live as normal a life as they could under the the Babylonian dominion in the Babylonian lands. And uh, they would have things as normal as possible in their captivity for 70 years before they would return back to Jerusalem. The ones that would have it on an abnormal basis are the ones slated for destruction, those that would actually encounter the uh, the sword, that would encounter the Babylonian armies when Jerusalem falls. And so this is what we deal with here, all right? So it starts with marriage and family life. Jeremiah has denied the temporal life blessings of a wife and children. He has denied it. It has not permitted him. Now, Uh, Ezekiel is allowed to get married and he he does get married and in fact there's another episode in Ezekiel's life where his wife dies and he's not allowed to grieve. He can't go to his wife's own funeral and that is to communicate a different message that the doctrine that Ezekiel's teaching there. Uh, So that's different than Jeremiah's message. He 's denied the temporal life blessings of a wife and children he's given some of the toughest work to do of any Old Testament saint, and he's denied a helpmate in his work of service he uh, He has to engage in this work without a helpmate see another aspect that makes him very much a type of Christ in jesus day. Some people thought he was he was Jeremiah returned. Uh, and I expect a lot of it had to do, well, he was not married. He wasn't. He didn't have a normal family life. He was hated about as much as Jeremiah was hated. There were a lot of other similarities between Jeremiah and Jesus. And, uh, and so here we see it. And this is quite a contrast with uh, the instructions that are sent to the captives. If you hold your finger here in chapter 16, we can peek ahead to chapter 29. And I'll give you a preview for where we'll be in 13 weeks. Jeremiah 29, and uh, here's a letter that gets sent, all right? Not an email, not a text. We're talking quill on, on parchment and a scroll that had to be physically carried, right? These are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile. The priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So they had correspondence back and forth, all right? They were a very literate people. Don't believe the liars that tell you that Israel was completely illiterate until they came back from the captivity, that they learned how to read and write from the Babylonians. It is a lie that, that the, the liberal theologians try to use to discredit uh, canonicity in the, in the scriptures in many ways. Moses was extremely illiterate. The Egyptians were extremely illiterate, going back millennia. And the idea that uh, that Israel was uh, was an illiterate bunch of uh, buffoons is is ridiculous. All right. So here's this correspondence, and in this, we'll try to skim on down here. The point being, um, verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. They were the ones God had blessed. He blessed them in 605 when he sent Daniel and his friends. He blessed them again in 597 when he sent Ezekiel and 10,000 10, others. And ultimately speaking, the ones that faced the destruction in 586, they were not the blessed ones. They were the ones that were, that were brutalized and taken away and enslaved, and most of them didn't even live through the, the massacre. But the, to the exiles, they were the blessed ones. So the letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying... All right. Thus says the Lord of hosts, uh, verse 5, Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, the 70 years of their captivity was to be productive, and uh, as productive or more so as when they went to Egypt, 70 people went down, and how many came out 400 years later? All right. That's a debate, actually. You don't have to answer that. Um, some would say 6 million, some would say 70,000. I lean on the 70,000 side. Uh, but same thing with the captivity. They went to captivity, they come back in 70 years. All right. It, pretty much two generations, and some that lived the whole time. Some that lived the entire... Daniel lived the entirety of the 70-year captivity. He was an old man by the end of it, but there you have it. So uh, bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. So when Ezra and Nehemiah bring them back, we've got a census they take, and we've got the listing of the fathers and their household and and all the the blessings as they came back. And then verse 7, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. This is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible that, that should shape our prayer life. Do you, do you pray for the city of Austin? Do you pray for Travis County? I mean, more than just, you know, the destructive prayers of, Lord, why have you not blasted them yet? But the, the, the constructive prayers, the blessings. We want our job market to thrive. We want our economy to thrive. We want, and, and you're going to grumble and say, well, then the, all the communists that, that are running the place are going to get credit for how great the economy is. I don't care. I'm commanded by my God to pray for the welfare of the city where he sent me. And the blessing by association is, and, and all the all the communists on the city council, they're going to brag and they're going to boast and they're going to celebrate all they want. The real record is going to indicate that it's blessing by association from Austin Bible Church that caused the economy of the state of Texas to, uh, I'll, I'll take credit, that the, the economy for the state of Texas, the job market for Austin, why has this town been been preserved from some of the judgment in our nation going back eight years now? All right. Blessing by association, believers that are salt and light, that are of benefit to their culture. And we see it right here. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have your welfare. Say. For God to provide, there need to be jobs. There need to be an economy, there needs to be economy, there needs to be blessings, and we pray for that. Pray for that. Gary Williams used to laugh at that. Rich people with too much money to spend, and these unbelievers throwing all kinds of money at things on a wine rack, and and he builds this wine rack, and he gets 80% done with this wine rack, and then the, the rich guy changes his mind and says, no, I want a different kind of wood. And Gary says, well, you're, you're crazy because you've already bottled this wood. It's already almost done. And he says, oh, I don't care. I'm going to give this away. Build a different one out of this wood instead. And Gary would just making more money hand over fist and thanking the Lord saying, you know, God's blessings that the treasure of the wicked is saved up for the righteous. And, uh, and that he thanked the Lord. He said, Lord, this is your grace provision that this unbeliever has too much money. This Muslim has all this money to spend. And uh, this Christian carpenter is, is being blessed to, uh, to produce these things. So pray, seek for the welfare of the city. They are told to have normal family life. What a vivid contrast. Jeremiah is not going to have normal family life. And Jeremiah is, and you can imagine, because right, when, didn't we say he was about eight years old probably when he started to prophesy, when he entered into ministry? And he, you know, you're looking forward to growing up. You're looking forward to finding a girl someday. You're looking forward to, you know, not going to happen not going to happen for jeremiah stay faithful and he does he's banned from all funeral services and celebrations we read through those verses already funeral services and celebrations and you know you think uh and some you know a lot of folks maybe wouldn't mind the the free pass (laughs) sorry dear i'd love to go to this wedding with you but uh you know god said i can't go so You know, it may be that there's uh, occasions when you wouldn't mind getting out of those kind of things. But for those that are truly spiritually minded that realize, you know, in funerals, you have a chance to speak about eternal life. You get a chance to speak about the glory of Jesus Christ. You have a chance to encourage in different things. There There are some very unique ministry opportunities that only happen, that only happen at funerals. People that never come to church, but they go to funerals. And you got a chance to preach Christ. Say, Banned from these things. Other Old Testament prophets are placed under similar abnormal circumstances. I mean, the book of Hebrews says these are men of whom the world was not worthy. And I believe that. I believe in some of the things what they were commanded to do. Read Hosea sometime. You know what Hosea was commanded to do? Hosea 1-2 and Hosea 3-1. He had to marry a harlot. And then uh, he had to take her back when she had resumed her harlot occupation, her prostitution business. And he takes her back. So you look at Hosea 1-2 and Hosea 3-1, and he did that under orders from the Lord so that he could portray what the Lord has been enduring in all the harlotry that Israel had put Yahweh through. Israel was the faithless bride of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. And Hosea had to portray that in, in his marriage, in his family life. He has to name a couple of kids He gives them those names to teach the doctrine, and the second one's likely not even his kid anyway. The first one is, but the second one is probably not even his kid. You know, his wife's a prostitute. Who knows whose kid this is? Ezekiel, chapter 24, uh, he has normal family life until the time that his wife dies. And then he's not allowed to grieve, and he's not allowed to mourn, and he's not allowed to attend her service. All right. And uh, you can read that in Ezekiel 24, verses 15 through 24. I believe there's also a church age application as well. And if you want more on this, I recommend the studies we did years ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The the church age is the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. Paul says, in view of the current distresses, I think it best that there are reasons why a believer may choose to uh, to not get married. A believer may choose to not raise a family, to not raise children, and it's because of the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. It may be God has called you to a ministry. It may be missionary work, whereby it's too dangerous for wives and children, or it may be um, other facets of divine discipline, facets of angelic conflict, whereby uh, God is... as. as uh, Enforces a time of separation. And the the husband and wife are separated for for months on end. So in 1 Corinthians 7, we have the description here, um, and yet it's not normal, okay? I think it's clear that uh, what's normal is getting married, that that it's not good for the man to be alone. Uh, Not all men are as myself, Paul says in verse 7, but each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another from that. Not every man is designed to be celibate. Not every woman is designed to be celibate. Verse 9, if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. If if God has not equipped you physically and spiritually and every other way to be uh, celibate, well then, you're not designed to be celibate. Marriage is the provision for that. That's why it's called the marriage bed. So what's normal is marriage life and children. However, You get down later in the chapter, and he starts to address the conflict and about the condition that you were called in, and it may be. So verse 24, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who is by the mercy of the Lord found trustworthy. And this is his commentary on the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. I think then it is good in view of the present distress, it is good for a man to remain as he is. And you have to balance that. You have to consider that. That is a it is good statement. And you've got to put that side by side with the it is not good statement of of, of Genesis and ask yourself, where are we now? Ask ourselves, I'm thankful God's giving us Isaiah followed by Jeremiah. And we need to ask ourselves, where is our nation headed and how quickly are we getting there? All right. And uh, do we have discernment as to where we are in the church age? Anyway, so if you marry, you've not sinned. If you if you withhold marriage, you've not sinned. If you keep your virgin daughter virgin and keep her under your roof, you've not sinned. And all the things there. If you want more on that, like I say, it's uh, it's on the website in the First Corinthians series, and I recommend that. Now. The reason for the captivity is spelled out in generational terms. So as we get to verses 10 through 13, we've got some striking statements that are made here. Let me get back to Jeremiah now, Jeremiah 16 again. You can rescue your finger that you've had trapped since I told you to leave your finger there in chapter 16. All right. He says in verse 10, now when you tell this people all these words they will say to you, for what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us? So he's going to communicate the doctrine connected with his unmarried state and connected with his non-participation in funerals and weddings and everything else. He's going to preach to them why he doesn't do these things. And they're going to say, why? Why is God putting us through this? because they've evidently not been listening to the first 15 chapters, <laughs> all right? They've actually been ignoring most of what he's had to say. Well, they want to know why. You know, perhaps now he's reaching the age where he is of a marriageable age. Maybe he's at the stage now that his his clan, his parents, are starting to, to uh, contract and arrange a bride for him, and he's saying, no, thanks, I'm not doing this. The Lord has told me no uh, no marriages, and he has a chance to preach. And they want to know why. For what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us? And what is our iniquity, or what is our sin which we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you are to say to them, You want to know why? Here's why. And it's what I've been saying for 15 chapters now, and more. And it's actually very precise, and he speaks to them in generational terms. That's extraordinary. It is because your forefathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have followed other gods and served them and bowed down to them. But uh, but me they have forsaken and have not kept my law. So it starts with the forefathers, but it doesn't stop there. If that's all there was, they might have a complaint. They might have a yeah, but they might point to a scripture and say, well, wait a minute, are we judged for the sins of the fathers? And they might have a claim. They might want to get... I know, first of all they might want to get repentant, <laughs> and then they can start speaking scripture with the Lord. They might have a case, but they actually don't have a case, because they are the worst of all the generations. And this is this is where the long suffering of the Lord has reached its limit. Remember it's only to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me that He that's the, the patience of the Lord, you understand. He says then in verse 12, You too have done evil, even more than all your forefathers. For behold, you are each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart without listening to me. See, the forefathers, at least they listened before they rejected it. They listened and they acted like they were obeying. They listened and they tried. They obeyed partly. They they listened while they served God and mammon. All right? These guys... They're not even listening. They are rejecting Yahweh Elohim out of hand, not even listening as they go to serve the the false gods of this world. And so they are even worse. So you have done evil. This present generation, right here, right now. Okay? And then who are they in our culture? Who's the present generation right here, right now in our culture? Millennials right? I mean, the ones, they, they tell us that there's a generation on the way after the millennials and they're just not all here yet, okay? They're still being born. They're not, they're still kids. They're still growing up. But we're talking about the generation right here, right now, that's in college and starting their careers and starting their families. That's the millennials, okay? <laughs> I'm going to just pray, okay? Pray hard, because when we start comparing generations and we start evaluating what's the hunger for truth, what's the spiritual priority? Is it greater or is it less? And, well, Rodney Stark thinks it's increasing. And he's a very smart man. And his, his most recent book is, is counterintuitive. And he'll tell you from, right from the cover. He says, this flies in the face of everything you've been told. But he thinks the coming generations are going to be more religious than past, present and past generations. And I hope he's right. I hope he's right, saying, for a lot of things. Now, your forefathers in verse 11, you guys in verse 12, here's what's happening, verse 13. I will hurl you, vomit you out of this land into the land which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, and there you will serve other gods day and night, for I will grant you no favor. Part of the divine discipline upon the idol worshippers is to cast them into the land of idolatry and give them over for 70 years of this. And this is what's coming. I will hurl you. When a land vomits its people, that is a a clear teaching from the Old Testament. We want to be clear on that. I believe our land is on the verge of vomiting unless there's a repentance soon. Our land is on the verge of vomiting. Forefathers over several generations have forsaken Yahweh and rejected His law. All right? And we better recognize that. Because descendant generations must break that pattern, or else they face worse apostasy and worse judgment. God only tolerates a certain point to the third and the fourth generations. Now a generation can break that. There can be a good king, there can be a revival. There can be uh, periods of, of recovery. And the Old Testament describes occasional periods of recovery in the South, the southern kingdom, right? 20, good, or 20 kings in the, in, the line, in the line of Judah and several were, were, were good kings. Josiah was a good king. Hezekiah was a good king. Jehoshaphat was a good king, mostly. Um, Asa was a good king. They, they had some bad ones. Oh, they had some awful ones. They had Queen Athalia. They had uh, Manasseh. They had some awful, awful kings in the, in the south. In the north, there were 19 kings and they were all wicked. Okay? That's an easy way to remember. There wasn't a good one up there. So read Numbers 32, verses 6 through 15. Read Deuteronomy 32, 15 through 18. And what's going to strike you is it's going to strike you is the generational basis upon which Yahweh operates, how he deals with his covenant nation on a generational basis. Everyone that was 20 and older when they walked through the Red Sea, they were the ones that were condemned. They, They died in the wilderness. In order to enter into the land of flowing with milk and honey, they had to be under 20 at the Red Sea event. All right, And I think that's significant. We've been teaching this recently as well in the in the Proverbs class. Because in Proverbs 10, we've been dealing with generational accountability. When does God hold you accountable? When does God... I mean, there's a certain amount of grace when you're a child, when you're under your parents' roof, <laughs> and you're under your parents' discipline, and you may not like it, but you understand how much grace is there? Because it's your father and mother that stand before the Lord, that answer to the Lord for how they're raising you But when you leave father and mother and the two cleave to one another and become one flesh, when you step into your own generational accountability, now you stand before Yahweh Elohim, now you stand before the Lord God. And you're accountable as to whether you live the word of God or not. And that generational accountability, God holds you to it. That's Proverbs 10 as we've been dealing with it. The captivity generation represents the worst apostasy up to that point. They're outdoing the Exodus generation. and That's the group that made the golden calf, right? While Moses was up on the mountain. They outdid the wilderness generation. That's the crowd that worshipped the, 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 the Nehushtan uh, statue. They made the serpent a standard and started worshipping that. The give us a king generation. Okay? I made that up. You won't find that in the commentary anywhere. But the the group that was demanding that Samuel anoint a king for them because they wanted to have a king. All the other Gentile nations have a king. How come we don't have a king? The prophet Samuel said, you don't need a king. Yahweh is your king. And they said, oh, no, we want a king. And they give us a king generation. Or how about the fall of Samaria generation when the northern kingdom was swept away? That's the Hosea generation, by the way. King Hosea and the prophet Hosea. The fall of Samaria generation. And these guys outdid all of them. Absolutely outdid all of them. In fact, there's a glimmer of this back in chapter 7, Jeremiah 7 and verse 26. I don't know that I stressed it quite so strongly back in the week that we taught chapter 7. But he talks about here how they did not, uh, about what the fathers did, what you did, what you guys are doing. And says in verse 26, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck They did more evil than their fathers. More evil than their fathers. The accountability is more severe and the evil is more severe. Because you have the example to learn from of those that came before. Two other generations after Jeremiah will be even worse. An even greater evil will be manifested by the crucifixion generation. That is the living Jews in Jerusalem when they put Jesus on the cross. That generation is the worst of all until you get to the tribulation. What I call the crucifixion generation in Matthew 23:36, Matthew 27:25, Acts 2:40, that defiant generation that demanded the release of Barabbas and said, and, and Pilate said, "Well, what shall I do then with your Christ?" And they spoke, and God gave them what they wanted. And it's uh, it's it's pretty ferocious. Matthew twenty three thirty six. Um, he talks about filling up the measure of the blood. You scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. They're a bunch of prideful, arrogant liars. They would have taken part. They would have been in the front of the line. They're decorating all these prophets' tombs. They probably have a tomb for Jeremiah, a tomb for Isaiah. They probably have all these monuments. And they are the very descendants of the people who murdered those prophets say, so oh, we wouldn't have done that. Jesus said, oh, yes, you would. You testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. They just murdered the prophets. You're murdering the Christ. Fill up, then, the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. The totality of all bloodshed is being assigned to the crucifixion generation. The wrath of God is being poured out upon them. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. He's dealing with them as a generation. This generation. In 24.13, again, it's this generation. The one who endures to the end will be saved. That's the tribulation generation. He's dealing with generations. Uh, 27.25 is the crucifixion generation. There's a riot. Which of the two do you want me to release for you, Pilate says. And they said, Barabbas Well, well, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him, crucify him. You know, when you can't win with logic, go for volume. Just get the crowd whipped up, shout, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. What defiant words. And in 70 AD, they will be eating their children. They will be, this judgment is coming when the Romans destroyed the city. Oh, it's horrendous. Finally, Acts 2.40 is the final reference here to the crucifixion generation and God's dealings with them on a generational basis. Acts 2.40. And Peter is preaching to them about how they crucified the Christ. And they're pierced to the heart and they say, brethren, what shall we do? You know, what do you do if you've crucified the Christ? He said, repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You need to identify with the body of Christ and enter into the church age. That's not a Billy Graham evangelism message there, you understand. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation be saved from this perverse generation. That's why that repent and be baptized message is so totally different from our gospel message, right? The coming Antichrist generation as well is featured prophetically. Jesus speaks of it in Matthew 10, 23, Matthew 24 in the uh, All of it Discourse. Matthew 24 verses 13, 14, and 34. I'm not going to have time to take us there, but You understand that's dealing with the Antichrist generation of the tribulation of Israel. That's the generation that will not pass away before the the Lord returns in Second Advent where the one who endures to the end will be saved. Finally then, verses 14 through 21, restoration is promised both near and far. See, Jeremiah is so powerful. He talks to them about 70 years. He talks to them about how they're going to come back from Babylon. But in many of his messages, he is looking eschatologically down the road to tribulational prophecies. He is looking to the second advent of Jesus Christ. See, the coming back from Babylon is just a a foreshadowing. It's just a a preview of coming attractions when Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah bring them back from Babylon. That's just a, a sample Second Advent, Jesus brings everybody, every Jewish person from the planet comes to live in the land. And much of uh, Jeremiah's message addresses that in verses 14 and following. Notice, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That up till now has been the common uh, language of a vow, the common language of identifying the God of Israel. Who is the God of Israel? Well, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God who redeemed us out of Egypt, who brought us through the wilderness, who brought us into the land of flowing with milk and honey. And for all of their history, through their Old Testament history, that has been the God that they serve. He's the God that brought us up out of Egypt. But that that remembrance is going to be done away. They're no longer going to say because something so much greater is coming. The global regathering of 2nd Advent is coming. And they're going to talk about the God who brought them back from captivity. Now after Zerubbabel brings them back, it's the God who brought us back from Babylon. But in the 2nd Advent, the God who brought us back from global captivity. That's what's going to be said. Verse 15, As the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. And imagine, he's going to bring them back globally, not just one exodus from one country like Egypt, but 200 exoduses from 200 Gentile countries, or however many there will be at that point in time. I don't think many of them will still be left after Armageddon. (laughs) A lot of them are going to be destroyed in the coming wars. So when he regathers all the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth and he brings them into the millennial kingdom, then what's going to be said is as the Lord lives, who brought us back, and they're not going to remember Exodus. Exodus will, will be forgotten compared to the global regathering of the second advent of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so, I can't imagine anything maybe would America ever replace George Washington? I mean, would we ever talk about the, the country who, you know, it will no longer be remembered that George Washington was the father of our country, that he led, the, he was commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, that he led the, the war effort against Great Britain. Can you imagine what it would take, what kind of existential war for survival it would take for a future general? To be become known as the second founder of America. Okay? The second founder, the second George Washington, the second founder. It would have to be existential. It would have to be so sweeping. You know, Rome had three, three founders of Rome. Gaius Marius was the third founder of Rome. It would have to be something along those lines for there to be a second founder of America. But here's this is what they're saying with respect to as the Lord lives, who brought us back in the second advent the second the exodus will no longer be front and center okay almost word for word what we read here is going to be re-taught in chapter 23 the same prophecy the same promise comes back again not only here in verses 14 and 15 but it's restated in chapter 23 interestingly enough fishermen are promised fishermen are are promised followed by hunters Oh man. Can we stop and spend three or four weeks on this? <laughs> Who are the fishermen? Who are the hunters? Can we um, delve into the fishers of men that Jesus called in his first advent? And the hunters of souls that he will summon in his second advent that actually will precede him in the tribulation? Jeremiah sixteen sixteen. Behold, I'm going to send from any fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And it's remarkable, isn't it? The um, <laughs> the Pharisees hated those fishermen. They were scornful, a bunch of Galilee hicks, you know, you Galilee. I mean, they were like, they were picking on Galilee like I pick on Kentucky, right? It's just like, we just, there's there's certain part of our nation that we, we, poke fun of because we think they're less sophisticated or I don't know why, for whatever reason. I grew up in Washington, we poked fun of Oregon. You know, you grow up in Texas, you pick fun of Oklahoma, right? Or, I mean, every state has a stat. What I want to know is, who does Kentucky pick on? <laughs> Tennessee. Tennessee, West Virginia maybe, I don't know. But the, these these Pharisees look looking down at these Galilean fishermen, as a bunch of knuckleheads, as a bunch of morons, ordering them to quit preaching Jesus. And these Galilean fishermen are just embarrassing them left and right. They're powerful in the scriptures. These fishermen. Well, here we have a promise of coming fishermen. And, and this verse needs a lot of work, by the way. Most of the commentaries do something different with these fishermen and hunters. They make them agents of Nebuchadnezzar in the 5th century BC. But anyway... I am going to send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And afterwards I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt for them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rocks. And that's the, the, remember the underwear that he put in the cleft of the rock? Okay, same cleft, same vocabulary, same eschatological fulfillment. This is a grace provision. He's going to take some ugly underwear and make it new. All right. For my eyes are on all the ways they're not hidden from my face nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes, I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. Wow. This takes some time to preach as well. This this requires development and it's not our format. Okay? but study this sometime. Study. Double compound discipline. Why does Yahweh Elohim administer double compound discipline? Why is it, as, as Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, why is it like for like in kind? Why is it doubled ag- again from His hand? Double compound discipline. We'll have it again next week in chapter 17. Isaiah spoke about it in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 61. The Apostle John writes about it in Revelation 18.6. Double compound discipline is administered as a consequence to Judah's land pollution. And by the way, this is real land pollution. This is not what the tree huggers are telling you about, okay? This is not what the, the environmental left is talking about when they're talking about pollution. Scripture talks about pollution. And it's the damage to creation that comes about by human sin, it's the defilement. It's the abomination. All right. It includes idolatry, and it includes what the Bible calls as abominations. And we live in a generation that redefines things so that there's no such thing as idolatry, and there's certainly no such thing as abominations. If you call something an abomination, you'd be a hater because this generation uh, says, oh no, we have to tolerate, we have to accept, we have to love them. And the Bible says it's an abomination, and the idolatry and the abominations pollute the land. The land vomits the inhabitants out. We taught this already back in chapter 2, Jeremiah 2, 7. Jeremiah 3 uh, is a huge development. Leviticus 18, verses 24 through 30. In that passage, it's rampant sexual promiscuity. In Numbers 35, it's bloodshed. It's violence. It's murder. It's the uh, uncontrolled gang shootings in the major streets, in the streets of the major cities. It is the defilement of blood upon a land, and a land will vomit us. I wish I had time. <laughs> oh, I got four minutes. We've already covered it in chapter 2 and chapter 3. I would encourage you, animals, trees, land, there is an environmental impact statement. The Bible makes environmental impact statements all the time. And it's the creation that groans because the stewards of creation are rebelling against the creator. Creation groans. Read Romans 8 sometime and see how creation groans. Okay, Leviticus 18, 24 through 30. And depending on who you're talking to, the minute you turn to Leviticus, they're they're done talking. They don't want to hear it. And they think that we should just rip Leviticus out of our Bibles. They think they're so smart when they say, well, do you eat pork chops? And I say, yeah, of course I do. And there's not a reason to remove Leviticus from my Bible. All right. Leviticus 18, 24 through 30. Now notice, do not defile yourselves by any of these things. This is defiling, personally, spiritually defiling. For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. That's why they got the land they got. It was because the Amorite was being expelled, being vomited. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. This is when Yahweh vomits, when the land vomits. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. The alien who sojourns among you is still an alien, doesn't act like he's a quasi-citizen. He's an alien who sojourns among you and he's expected to follow your laws. For the men of the land who have done, been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled. So the land will not spew you out should you defile it as it has spewed out the nation which is before you. And he goes on to describe this, all right? This is what's happening. By the way, this is why they're being sent to Babylon. This is why they've got to be there for 70 years. The land needs rest. For 70 years, the land needs rest. It has been too defiled by the, uh, uh, Judah, by Jerusalem. And ask yourself, when you read through these passages, and Numbers 35 is not sex, Numbers 35 is bloodshed. Okay? And it's fornication and bloodshed that are the two things that defile people and defile real estate. They have environmental impact, in the plants, the trees, the animals, the land. The final verses here are rather encouraging. Gentile nations are going to forsake their idolatry and turn to the God of Israel. When will they do that? Well, they're going to do that when restored Israel forsakes her idolatry. Okay, In the second advent of Jesus Christ, when they come through the tribulation, and when restored Israel forsakes her idolatry. They will come, and they will worship. All the Gentiles will come. Jeremiah sixteen. We've already taught this in Jeremiah three seventeen. Jeremiah four two. There's a great promise in Psalm twenty two twenty seven, which I like. Psalm twenty two is the crucifixion psalm, and um, it's a good psalm to look at right before communion. Psalm 22 is the, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, psalm, is our saviors on the cross. And yet he has hope for the other side. He has hope for the other side of the cross. What's going to happen because of the cross? And uh, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. What a promise. Isaiah 2.2 as well is a promise. I'll close with my favorite one, Zechariah chapter 8. Are you guys tired of seeing Zechariah chapter 8? I I put it on a lot of slides and um, probably more than I realize, probably more than I ought to. Um, but I just enjoy it so much. Zechariah eight twenty through 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go. Austin will get together with Round Rock and say, man, let's go to Jerusalem. The Lord is there. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you. We have heard that God is with you. Ten Gentiles will grab the garment of a Jew and say, You know the Lord. Teach us doctrine. Teach us the word of God. (laughs) Man. Well, so in order for Israel to fulfill their stewardship function... What needs to happen? They need to abandon their idolatry. They need to go through, first of all, the 70-year captivity, but ultimately they need to go through 2,000 years of uh, Gentile dominion. They need to go through the great tribulation of Israel. They need to be brought back, all right? And Jesus will do that. All right. Short Sunday, but this is what the Lord has for us. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the faithfulness of Jeremiah, for all of these men that had uh, strange family lives or lack thereof, or other circumstances, what they had to deal with. Isaiah had to go around naked for three years. and um, A lot of these prophets, Father, they, uh, they were destitute. They lived in caves. They were fed by birds. They were sawn in two, men of whom the world was not worthy. And, uh, and I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you for their message. I pray that we would identify the message and rightly divide it appropriately, Father, so that we can glean that which applies to Israel and that which applies to us. Particularly, Father, this issue in terms of celibacy and the difficulties of the church age and why you may call us to not be married for a season. Why, if uh, you call us to be unmarried all of our days or if you deny us children all of our days, Father, Open our eyes to see that your purpose is that which you accomplish, and it is for our good. It is for the glory of your Son. And I pray that we would be mindful of our uh, pursuit, that we would run with endurance the race that's set before us, and that we would lay aside the encumbrances and the sins, and we'd stop grumbling over what we don't have, and we would start pursuing what you have supplied. And I thank you for being so powerful, for being so faithful for uh, letting the Word of God just come alive and shape our thinking. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name I do pray. Amen.